Good morning to you, Radiant. It's so good to have you uh, with us online this morning. And I got to tell you, th- this is a, a just a personal delight and a joy uh, to get to worship with you. First in song, uh, as we've just done. And, and now as we, we open up God's word, we dive into it together to, to gaze into the beauty that's emanating from it about who our God is. Now we've been in this uh, sermon series now for about four and a half months, the Radiant God series, and uh, that means we've covered some uh, 17 different aspects of who God is. And uh, you know, in a lot of ways, this series has been like uh, studying a diamond. You know, there's many different ways that we can peer into and gaze at a diamond. We can, we can hold it at, at arm's length and uh, look at it and, and kind of take it in in totality that way. Or, or we can kind of uh, bring it back in and focus on it. And then we can look at it from above or uh, below or from the, the side and, and all around. And, and, and we could even take a magnifying glass and zoom in on some of the intricate beauties. And, and, and no matter uh, what angle we look at, uh, we get to see a different aspect of the beauty of the diamond. But Nate, make no mistake, it's still a diamond through and through, no matter how we look at it and from which viewpoint. And so it is with God's essence. Um, we've, we've, many times in this series, we've, we've kind of been trying to grab a hold of his infinite nature and, and trying to see and savor his beauty that emanates from him. And so earlier on, especially in this series, um, we've looked at, at, at that God is triune, that, that he's eternal, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-present, um, that he's all-knowing, that he's sovereign, and so on and so forth. And, and, and we've been struck by the sheer magnitude of those aspects of God that we've just tried to bite off a little bit here and there of his beauty. And and then lately, we've been looking at the the, the intricate beauty of God. And and we've seen that that God is just and and that he is love and that he is is mercy. And and you know what? We've we've even seen from that 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 some of those aspects are even imprinted on us because God has created us in his image. And so there are many different ways that we've been gazing into God's beauty and seeing his, his uh, radiant glory. But make no mistake, he's still God through and through, no matter how we look at him. He is all of these aspects, all at the same time. And so this morning, what we get to do is we get to shift our focus ever so slightly again. And we get to see and savor the wonder of God in his intrinsic grace. By the way, have you noticed that it seems like our culture is becoming increasingly graceless these days? I mean, you don't have to to look very far or or very hard to be able to see the evidence for that. And In fact, several weeks ago, I came across a tweet in which one of you in our faith family kind of expressed something about this that was really helpful for me. And and here's here's what the tweet said. Whatever happened to grace... Kindness, thinking the best about others, not judging, trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes. All I see is is anger, hatred, and blaming. Instead of coming together, we're devouring each other. I agree with this sentiment. I I resonate with it. And and the sad uh, reality is, is we see this happening among believers. It's like some barbaric form of Christian cannibalism where we're just eating and devouring one another. 
And rather than, than, than sit back and entertain thoughts about why this is so, let me just jump to what I believe is the root issue. And, and here it is. When God's people neglect to rightly see and savor who he is, they will decreasingly reflect who God is to others. Or, or maybe to say the same thing in a little bit more positive way, a graced people rightly seeing and savoring our intrinsically gracious God will increasingly adore him and live grace-filled lives. You see, that, that's where we're going this morning. We want to seek to see and savor our God and his grace. And as we do, as we see our radiant God, we're going to get to gaze into three glorious, amazing beams of light that are emanating from the reality that our God is grace. And so if you would, please, let's just stop, let's pause, and let's just ask God to give us the grace to see the beauty of his grace this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I, I would pray that you would give us the grace to see your grace. As we, we jump into your word, Lord, would, would you help us to understand? Holy Spirit, would you give us understanding? Would you give us eyes to see, Lord? Would we wor- might we worship you in this time? And might we walk away with a newfound wonder for who you are in your grace? Thank you so much for the opportunity for us to look at this, this aspect of who you are this morning. And thanks so much for, for giving us so much of, uh, of who you are in your word. Oh Lord, be glorified. It's all for you. Be pleased this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you would, please grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 33. Uh, Exodus 33, we're going to start in verse 17. Now, we're going back to this passage that we looked at last week. And the reason for this is it's it's one of the, the clearest places in the Old Testament where we can actually see God, that God is grace, and that we can also see at the same time that God is love, that God is mercy, and that, that God is justness. Now, if you recall from last week, uh, God has just brought Israel out of Egypt. He's freed them from slavery. He has, he has established his, his relationship through covenant with them. Uh, he's given them the parameters of that covenant relationship, namely through the law. Israel immediately uh, uh, agrees to it, ratifies the covenant, if you will, and then, and then uh, very quickly, they break covenant with God by, by worshiping the golden calf. And so here we are in Exodus 33, and Moses is pleading with God on behalf of Israel. In fact, he's specifically asking for God's presence to go with them, asking for God's manifest presence to not depart from them. And in fact, he even says, he recognizes a truth here in verse 16. He says, is it not in your going with us that we are distinct from all the other nations? By the way, I think there's something that can be said for that for us as a church family. And so here we have in verse 17, the Lord responds to Moses' request. And here's what the Lord says in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. 
favor here. It's another word for, for grace. So um, he, he doesn't say that Moses has, has um, uh, earned God's grace. No, no, no. God says, you've found favor in my sight. That's cool. And then, and then God says, and I know you by name. How cool is that, that God knows Moses by name? Can you imagine what it's going to be like, by the way, side note, not in my notes, that what it's going to be like when, when we actually hear the audible voice of God calling us by name for all those who are in Christ. What a cool time that will be. And then Moses responds by saying, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so Moses here responds to this by, by asking to see God's radiant glory. And, and then God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to uh, uh, pass before you and, and make all my goodness pass before you so that you can see my goodness, so that you can see my glory. You might want to underline the word goodness here or circle it if you, if you make, mark up your Bible because we're going to come back to this here in just a second. Also, God says that, that I will be uh, gracious and merciful to whomever I please. Notice here that these are acts of grace and mercy. These are verbs here. God is talking about doing grace, doing mercy. So hold on to that now, and, and, and let's move over to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, we're going we're gonna to pick up in verse uh, 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Let's, let's pause there. So, so here we see that, that God is acquiescing to, to Moses' request to see his glory. God is showing Moses his glory by passing before Moses. And as he does, he describes himself as gracious and merciful and slow to anger. That's, that's long-suffering. We looked at the, that earlier uh, in our sermon series. Abounding in, in steadfast, or might I say, a covenant love. Faithfulness and justice. See, this is... God's goodness that he promised back in Exodus 33. God is showing Moses his goodness, and, and here God's goodness is expressed in his intrinsic nature. I'll also note that the word gracious here in verse 6 is not the same word that God uses for gracious in Exodus thirty-three nineteen. Note in, in 19, verse 19 from 33, I, I, I made a note that, that, that that's a verb that, that God was talking about, acts of grace. Here, though, it, it's not that at all. The, the word form that God uses here is only ever used to describe that God is grace. In fact, uh, verses 6 and 7 here are, are, are some of the most repeated descriptions of who God is in the entire Old Testament. Some 13 times. And this word form for grace is always only used as a specific description of who God is. Not who someone else is, but 
specifically reserved for who God is. So this verse here in verse 6 it is not talking about what God does. And I so appreciate what Pastor Doug mentioned last Sunday about mercy. He, he said that, that mercy is not merely an outcome or a transaction. It's not merely functional. Instead, mercy is first an affection, an inexhaustible inclination, a love-driven compassion, which then overflows into acts that relieve pain and misery. You see, this is exactly what God is doing here with grace. He is describing who he is first and foremost. Our God is grace. It is intrinsic to his being. And it's only from this essence of grace that God then performs acts of grace. It overflows into acts of grace. And you see, we'll miss this if we move too quickly into uh, demonstrations of God's acts. So here's the first glorious beam of light emanating from our God. It's this. Our God is grace stuns. Understand this, friends. Grace is not something that God created in himself after sin entered the world. Grace is is who God is and has been from all eternity. Grace has always been intrinsic to the Godhead. And it's intrinsic in ways that we don't even understand fully or can comprehend. I I mean, can you imagine what grace must have looked like but in, within the Godhead before there was even a universe? I mean, this is, it's completely and utterly stunning. You see, here in our text, when God should be dealing out judgment to Israel for their sin, and we see God instead revealing to us that he is grace. By the way, don't miss that divine irony there, that, that in God's describing that he is grace, he is also demonstrating his grace. And a God who is grace is a God who does grace. A.W. Tozer says it well. I know we've, we've quoted him several times in this sermon series, but it, it bears quoting him again here. And God will always be himself, and grace is an attribute of his holy being. He can no more hide his grace than the sun can hide its brightness. Men may flee from the sunlight to dark and musty caves of the earth, but they cannot put out the sun. So men may despise the grace of God, but they cannot extinguish it. You see, friends, grace was evident in Genesis 1 and 2 before sin ever entered the world. How do you know this? Because God created from nothing a a beautiful world with wonderful creatures, with bright and brilliant colors, and a people created in his image. No one did anything to deserve that. I mean, they didn't even exist. God, in his infinite pleasure within himself, decides, you know what, I'm going to share this with the rest of, of, of this new creation that I'm going to create. It's an overflow of his pleasure in himself he then creates. But we also see that grace is immediately evident after the fall when, when instead of, of wiping out Adam and Eve from off the face of the planet and starting over, we instead see that he promises to send someone 
who would come, the seed of the woman, who would come and crush the head of the serpent. In fact, we see God's grace after that over and over and over again. In fact, God's grace is so pervasive from Genesis 1 to Exodus 34, our text here, that it's as though that, that God is priming the grace pump. He's, he's getting us ready for this moment in redemptive history where he is stunningly revealing who he is. You see, God does grace because God is grace. And so with this revelation in mind, let's define what grace is. If, you if you're taking notes this morning, you, you may want to jot this down. Grace is God's infinite pleasure in himself, freely and extravagantly poured out on us in all that is truly good. Let me say that again. Grace is God's infinite pleasure in himself, freely and extravagantly poured out on us in all that is truly good. And the entire Old Testament just oozes that God is grace. I mean, there are literally hundreds of examples in the Old Testament demonstrating that God is grace. Oh, by the way, there are hundreds of examples of, uh, in the Old Testament of God demonstrating that he is love, that he is mercy. And whoever might say that the Old Testament is nothing but God's judgment and wrath just hasn't studied their Old Testament well enough. We see God that God is grace is evident before Exodus 34, as we just saw, and it's evident afterwards, all the way through Malachi. Friends, the reality that God is grace should stun us. And, and we ought to, to soak it up and savor this God. We, we should stare at this radiant beam of God's grace until it overwhelms us with joy and awe. Until it, it blinds us with, with all-consuming delight. But God doesn't stop there. Oh, he's just getting started. Because the Old Testament examples of our God is grace prepare us for the climax of grace that we see in the New Testament. So if you would please, turn with me over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 17. And what we see in, in, in verse 1 is that, that, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see that the Word was with God in the beginning, before time. The Word was there, and the Word is God, and we know that the Word is Jesus. And so by the time we, we come to uh, uh, verse 14, we've seen so many things about this, this God, this Jesus, that, that John now reveals more of, of who it is. So let's look here in verse 14. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what we see here is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that Jesus is God and he became a man and he came and he dwelled 
among us. And, and that we also see that, that this Jesus is full of grace and truth. That is who he is. And, and it's from Jesus' full, fullness that we have received grace upon grace. Or maybe you have a translation that says grace in place of grace. So in the Old Testament, our gracious God pours out his good pleasure in displays of grace. But, but, but Jesus here in the New Testament, we see, embodies God's good pleasure. Verse 17, it says that the law came through Moses. And what this is not implying is that there was no grace in the law. No, no, no. The, the, the law itself was grace. But here uh, we see that a greater grace has come. His name is Jesus. Our God is grace became a man. Grace personified, if I could say it that way. So if we want to gaze into the eyes of grace, then, then we need only look at the radiant glory of Jesus Christ. He lived a life of grace and truth. We, we only have to, to look at the four Gospels for evidence of that. In fact, um, it overflowed his the fact that he is grace overflowed in the lives of others. Let me give you some examples. Jesus was kind to the outcasts and oppressed. He healed the sick and raised the dead. He, he fed the hungry. He cast out demons. And by the way, let me just note that these acts by Jesus are what we call common grace. It's the, the common pleasure that overflows from God to all his creation. Everyone may experience and enjoy these common graces. But see, the, the greatest beam of grace-filled light, the, the pinnacle moment in all of redemptive history is the grace that's emanating from our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The whole Old Testament points us to it, and Jesus' entire earthly ministry leads us there. So if you would, please, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at, at this text again like we looked at it at last week only. This time we're going to look at it through the, the lens of grace. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And, and, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So, so we see here that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it says that we, we followed the prince of the power of the air. Do you know who that is? That's Satan. And so scripture is saying that, that we were followers of Satan, that we were enemies of God, that we were haters of God. And we were by nature children of wrath. I, I take that uh, to mean that, that God's wrath was on us. In other words, sin had destroyed our ability to love God with all our hearts and to image him in all that we say or do or think. 
Instead of being characterized by God's holy nature, we were instead characterized by a sinful nature. See, in a world of increasing entitlement, I deserve this or you owe me that. Friends, biblically speaking, the only thing that, that we deserve is God's just punishment, the eternal torment of hell. That's fair. That's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. And, and I bring this up because if we do not fully comprehend the bad news, then we're not going to fully grasp the glory of the good news. The bad news is what makes the good news so good. And the truth is, without God's intervening grace, we deserve nothing but God's wrath. John 3.36 says that, that anyone who does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on them. That doesn't mean that, that God's wrath will be on them someday in the future or, or that God's wrath has been on them in, in some time in the past. No, that means that, that anyone who is not following Jesus Christ, who is not in Christ, who does not believe the Son, God's wrath is on them now, right now, today. And one day, at the final judgment, the full measure of God's wrath is going to be poured out on all unbelievers. That will be a horrible day. Because they will have to spend eternity separated from God. Loved ones, we cannot fully understand the magnificence of our God as grace if we divorce it from His justness. And when we do, when we divorce grace from justness, we get what Diedrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. And here's what he says about it. Cheap grace is a grace without price. Grace without cost. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And this is an important reality. And I fear that this may be the current plight for some of you in my faith family. Well, friends, let the reality of our sins rest upon us for just a moment. We need to feel the weight. We need to feel the heaviness. We need to feel that burden, the hopelessness. Because this reality is what makes the first two words of verse 4 so awesome. Let's look at it together. But God, underline it, highlight it, circle it, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Friends, but God is, is where we see God's justness in fellowship with his love, mercy, and grace. 
Because, but God is where God's righteousness, uh, righteous vindicating fairness is aimed at Christ on the cross. But God is, is where God's affectionate, love-driven compassion is, is aimed at our sinful misery. But God is, is where God's pleasure in himself is aimed at bringing us eternal good through Christ's death. Oh, friends, our God is grace saves. And we ought to, to gaze into the radiant beam of this glorious light. We ought to take it in, savor it. There is a way to escape judgment, to break the chains of hopelessness. For, for God's infinite pleasure is extravagantly poured out on us through Jesus on the cross. And by the way, this is not God's common grace. This is God's saving grace. And it is only available to those who are given the grace to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Add to that, look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And, and so for, for all of us who have placed our faith in Christ, then what we see here is that God's grace makes us alive. It raises us up with Christ and it seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. God's all-consuming wrath is removed because it's absorbed by Jesus. Last year at uh, Morehouse College's commencement, that's a, a private university here in the U.S., um, the commencement speaker, uh, philanthropist Robert Smith, announced that he was, he was uh, paying off the entire student loan debt of the 2019 graduating class. How cool is that, right? Where was he when I was in school? He said he, he wanted to give them the best start to their careers that he could. If that wasn't good enough, a few months later he announced that he was also going to pay off all the educational debts of the parents of the entire graduating class. Friends, I read that and I was like blown away. I was amazed. I couldn't believe it. What an incredible gift. By the way, those students didn't deserve that. They didn't earn it. That was a gracious gift on his behalf. By the way, he spent some $34 million on paying off those debts. That just warms my heart to see that kind of, of graciousness going on. But know this. As incredible as that is, it doesn't even come close to the one who paid off our hopelessly insurmountable debts in the greatest act of grace this world has ever seen. That God would pour out his, his good pleasure on us, depraved haters of God, enemies of him, so that through faith we may be saved by, by Christ's innocent blood sacrificed on the cross is absolutely scandalous. In fact, so much so that people have outright rejected it as much for its how scandalous it is. And yet our radiant God did. 
J.I. Packer says, Grace is free in the sense of being self-originated and of proceeding from one who was, not, who was free not to be gracious. Only when it is seen that what decides each individual's destiny is whether or not God resolves to save him from his sins. And that this is a decision which God need not make in any single case can one begin to grasp the biblical view of grace. Friends, our response to this free, scandalous grace should be one of humility and thankfulness. We were haters of God. We didn't earn it. We did nothing to deserve it. This is the only time in the history of mankind where if it seems too good to be true, it isn't. And God's invitation to you and to me and, and all who will listen is simply just come. Come to me. Come see and savor my infinite, matchless grace. So I have to ask, is this where you're at today? If not, just as, as God loves you and is merciful to you, I, I want to, to lovingly and, and, and mercifully encourage you to talk with somebody. Maybe that's a pastor. Maybe that's a small group leader. Maybe that's someone in your own home. Please, I beg you, do not neglect and reject. Do not trample upon the greatest gift of grace that God has ever lavished upon. By the way, let me just note something else here in verse 7 real quick. It says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? Not only does God manifest his grace through his son on the cross bringing about salvation today, but it says he does this so that he might show us his infinite grace forever and ever and ever, which means that we can never come to the bottom of God's grace. We can never plumb the depths of his grace. All we can do is jump headlong into the river of his pleasures forever, and we will never fully explore or measure the breadth and depth of his grace. Our God is grace saves but it doesn't stop there. It's like the Energizer Bunny. It just keeps going and going and going. And here's the third beam of glorious light that's emanating from our God is grace. Our God is grace sustains. He sustains. When I was younger in my faith, um, I understood or came to a place to understand that God's grace saves. I came to Christ at a younger age. But what I, what I didn't quite understand so clearly was, was how God continues to extravagantly pour out his grace and his good pleasure to us after we become followers of Christ. And how necessary that is, friends. And I, I made the mistake of not seeing and savoring how necessary God's grace is for us and for me to abide in Jesus. You see, grace without discipleship is another form of cheap grace. 
The Apostle Paul talked about this problem in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, and he says, he says shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he goes, he goes no way. That's a, a strong, emphatic in the original language. It, it, it has this idea of like, God forbid, may it never happen. How can we who, who died to sin continue in it? So in, in our remaining few moments here, let's, let's take a few moments to, to explore God's sustaining grace a little bit more. In our final passage that we're going to look at this morning, let's turn over to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at uh, verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says... For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. Don't miss that. God's grace has appeared. Jesus Christ appeared. We just saw that in John and in in Ephesians. And he brought salvation. But look at this. Catch this. Verse 12. Training us to to renounce the ungodliness and worldly passions and to live uh, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope that appearing, the appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, are zealous for good works. Do you see it? Do you see it? God's grace sustains us in our walks with Jesus. Grace trains us It teaches us what godliness looks like. It gives us the strength to reject ungodliness and abide in the Savior. Friends, any godly fruit in our lives is only a product of grace. And it reminds us that our God is grace. So then what does that mean, Chris? Well, it means that For those impacted by a pandemic, which is pretty much all of us, our God is grace sustained. For those discouraged and depressed this morning, our God is grace sustained. For those stuck in sin, our God is grace sustained. For those with with aging parents, broken families, wayward children, financial strain, personal loneliness, poor physical health, marriage problems, fertility issues, same-sex attraction, turmoil, piercing fear and anxiety, agonizing gender struggles, salvation doubt, faith doubt, job loss, life disappointment, painful grief, our God is grace sustains it all. Perhaps one of these examples describes where you're at this morning. I know it does for me in a couple of ways. So friends, let's look deeply into this glorious beam of light that's emanating, that's pulsating from our God is grace. Let's see and savor this God. Let's worship him in the splendor of his holiness and glory. It's a glorious thing that God saves And the glory just keeps coming, one ray of light after another, wave after wave after wave. So friends, persevere. 
run the race, finish strong, abide in Christ, indestructible joy awaits us who are in Christ because his grace sustains. It's been said that grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. He already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. Our God is grace. Stuns us into awe. Saves us through faith. It sustains us in kindness. Always poured out, always available. Earlier I mentioned that a a graced people, rightly seeing and savoring our intrinsically gracious God, will increasingly adore Him and live grace-filled lives. This is the answer to a graceless culture. And it starts with, with God's people seeing and savoring the immeasurable riches of His grace. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for being a God who is grace. And thank you for pouring out that infinite pleasure in yourself on us. God, I pray that you would be working in the lives of your people right now, and I pray that you'd be working in the lives of those who are not your people right now, but, but, but might be one day. Might you save them? God, for those of us who, who are in Christ, Lord, might you sustain us? Your grace teaches us that we are helpless apart from you but we are not hopeless. Our hope is on you. And so, Lord, we proclaim your glory. The radiant beauty of your grace has struck us. And may we never lose sight of it. Thank you so much, God. We love you. We pray these things in your son's name.